Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts. Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Ben Schiller, Features Editor here at Coindesk, and joining me today is Cam Thompson. Hey, Cam. Hey, Ben. How's it going? It's going well. And Danny Nelson is here as well. Hi, Danny. I am here. Hello. Good. How are we feeling about Independence Day? Uh, extremely independent. I'm still trying to figure out what a kilometer is. I have no idea. But that's my God-given right as a patriotic American. We use miles, actually, in the UK, so we're not fully metric. What about you, Cam? Are you looking forward to the fourth? I'm trying to catch the hot dog eating contest tomorrow. I want to see Joey Chestnut destroy 63 glizzies. Should be 63? That's the record. 63. He did that last year. Um, and maybe he'll do it again. Maybe he'll eat more. I don't know. We'll see. How the hell do you eat 63 hot dogs? I don't know. So today on the show, we've got a guest interview with Mauricio Magaldi from the Blockchain Insider podcast. And we're also going to be hearing from Cam in Cam's Corner talking about Azuki's and what's going on with that NFT and its latest mint. All right, let's get to it. This week on the show, we are joined by Mauricio Magaldi. He's the host of the Blockchain Insider Podcast and also the Global Strategy Director of Crypto at 11FS. He's got some really interesting views on crypto development and adoption worldwide, and also just really has his finger on the pulse of the culture, I'd like to say. I was on his show once. Now he's joining us here at Carpet Consensus. Mauricio, welcome to the show. Thank you, Danny. Pleasure to be here. Hi, Ben, Cam. I'm going to start the conversation today with the phrase that we all hear so often, that's Web3. Now, with crypto having its ups and downs, some people in the ecosystem, in the community might be using this phrase less. Mauricio, I don't think you're one of them. You talk about Web3 all the time. Could you give us a picture into your mind of what you think this phrase means and why you think it's important that we use it? In my mind, Web3 is a glow up for crypto, if, if we can say that. Because I, th I think crypto still carries that stigma of speculation and rug pulls and a multitude of very complicated things in terms of cryptography and consensus and algorithms and stuff like that. 
I think Web3 in general lifted that up a little bit and started talking about what do we solve with Web3? Because Web3 is relatable with the internet. So the internet, people get a little bit better. So I, I feel it has a little bit better rap. Not that you know NFT rug pulls have uh, helped maintain that perception, but I think Web3 is more towards like, okay, this is the internet of ownership. How do we solve this in the digital realm? So I think that's kind of where we are with uh, when it comes to thinking about Web3 as, a, as an industry term. I find that really interesting. So I am Coindesk's Web3 reporter which means I cover topics from NFTs, the metaverse, gaming, a little bit of DAOs, and a lot of Web2 companies that are moving into Web3. However, I've also been grappling with this definition of Web3 and how exactly we plan to use it going forward. And the way I see it is it's more so talking about the internet and the future of the internet and this digital ownership element that you were talking about not so much about the actual crypto money itself or these different tokens. I guess I'm curious where you see that fit in. Does Web3 you know, encompass Bitcoin, altcoins? I mean, obviously, Ethereum is a little bit more embedded in it with NFTs. But you know, how do you see these other areas of the crypto space fitting into this definition? Well, I think, if anything, we're seeing Web3 engulf Bitcoin. Uh, you guys did a very interesting episode on ordinals and, and the emergence of Bitcoin-based NFTs. Uh, we're even seeing Bitcoin-based stablecoins. Wow, this is pretty much like you know what we know of crypto and Web3 in non-Bitcoin land. So I think, yeah, absolutely. I think crypto is, if, if anything, crypto is means to an end within the context of Web3. Why do we have crypto? To do stuff in the internet of ownership. That's why cryptocurrencies actually exist and enable. So if we think about cryptocurrencies as this kind of lubricant for the things we want to do on the internet of ownership, it has its very righteous and rightful place in, in the context of Web3, for sure. I mean, it seems like Bitcoin was really an attack on government, right? And government control of financial markets and questions of inflation and hard money. Whereas Web3 is more of an attack or a response to Web2 companies, which are controlling our data. I mean, it's kind of a different set of questions there, right? Yeah, I mean, if, if you think how the technology that defines and operates Bitcoin emerged, absolutely. I mean, 2008, global financial crisis, completely disintermediation of the traditional financial system. But as with every technology, technology doesn't do what technology does. Technology does what the users want it to do. And yeah, that's why I think I kind of used the word engulfed, <laughs> Web3 engulfing Bitcoin, because absolutely right. Bitcoin wasn't thought to be this, you know, happy-go-lucky, monkey, pixelated pictures world. It was like hard money that government can take control of. And now it's also hosting NFTs and stable coins. And there are layer twos with very complex DeFi products in, in the world of Bitcoin. So I think... Yeah, it's the technology that is enabling this. And if we want to use that to be a self-sovereign form of digital money, we also can. But it lends itself to so much more. And that's what we're seeing emerge uh, with ordinals and everything that followed. So Maritza, you have very much of a global perspective, which is very interesting for us living here in the US and being a little myopic sometimes about our own little world. Where in the world would you say is a hotbed for Web3 development at the moment? Because we know it isn't here in the US with uh, all the 
trouble with regulations that we have and all the companies that are threatening to leave these shores. As you look around the world, where do you see things actually happy and, and productive? So I, I would not equate regulatory jurisdiction welcoming of crypto as the equivalent of a hotbed. It, it's a good proxy, but it's not just that, right? You have to have consumers that are educated and involved. You have to have funding for entrepreneurs to actually go and build stuff. So I think it's a whole combination of things that would enable a place or a geography to be called a hotbed for uh, Web3. Places where I feel are kind of going towards that category right now are the UK with two very interesting recent announcements. And it's not just because I live in the UK, um, but we, we saw A16Z Crypto announcing they're going to open their first international office in the UK, celebrated by the prime minister and many members of parliament, which is kind of weird if you think about you know self-sovereignty. And then you have the newly enacted FSMA, or the Financial Services and Market Act, that is very positive. We're also seeing a lot of activity in Hong Kong, Japan, Singapore, Brazil. So I think all of these countries are figuring out that crypto and Web3 are a new kind of geopolitical battleground. And they're moving you know, the, the chess pieces to enable their jurisdictions to be more welcoming. And once a jurisdiction kind of nails that balance between control and innovation, what we're going to see is the outpour of funding and talent and you know, new entrepreneurs and new projects and ultimately better prosperity to, to those jurisdictions. So I think it's, it's a very interesting progress in terms of trying to figure out how they're going to combine all of that because it is counterintuitive. Crypto is decentralized in terms of the technology stack. Can it be decentralized in the technology, but somewhat centralized in the regulatory aspect? Well, remains to be seen. I do know that you think a lot about AI. We spoke about AI when I was on your show. And in fact, I think you all had another Coindesk round recently, David Morris, to speak about AI and chatbots. A side note, I was uh, reading a recent New York Times story about a hacker house, which is at the center of the AI boom in Silicon Valley. The story talked about how this hacker house used to have a cohort, which was six out of 10 projects were crypto projects. Now, nine out of 10 are AI projects. And there's one Bitcoin project that's working on what happens to your Bitcoin when you die. And they're worried about getting any funding because everyone's so concerned with the AI stuff. In the crypto world, the crypto people, which is to say in our little bubble, the people in the bubble, aren't so worried about getting supplanted by the hottest trend in tech, which is definitely AI right now. But I think it's fair to think about and to ask, should we be worried about getting supplanted in the broader mindset by the AI trend? I have a particular take in this particular moment in history, which is AI needs blockchain. Right. If you recall that you know crypto runs on blockchains, what I'm trying to say is data on the internet right now is a free-for-all, right? You can scrape data with bots and, and engines from pretty much anywhere. And we don't know who owns that data, if anyone. We don't know where that data came from, whether that data is biased. And we're now training large language models with data that who knows? I mean, what's gonna come out of this, right? So the corpus that, which is the data that we use to train these models, are as random as possible in the current 
stage of the internet. When I say that AI needs blockchain, it means that blockchain has this very strong capability of providing provenance of where a piece of data came from and where it went through, which is what we do with forensics on, on crypto. Now, if we apply that to data as a complete wider class, we now can give provenance of data to AI models that we know where it came from. And more importantly, we could be able to actually monetize and pay back the owner of that piece of data for using that data properly in the context of an LLM. So I don't think we need to be worried about being you know, overrun by the AI phenomenon in terms of an industry. I don't think crypto is going to go anywhere. If anything, we're going to be more prevalent, but we need to figure out a way to merge these two things for our, our own good, I think. It's a really interesting take. I have a little bit of a pushback or just a question I want to bring. So in crypto, at least at Coindesk through our coverage, through a lot of our journeys understanding this technology, we're constantly asking, why do you need crypto to solve this problem? Or why blockchain to help make this thing easier? And a lot of times, yes, it would, but to the person who actually understands it, maybe not to the average consumer who isn't necessarily onboarded yet. Whereas with AI, it seems like people aren't really asking this question. They're just assuming AI is going to make everything easier. Let's bring it in. So how does the intersection of AI and crypto kind of help change crypto's image or at least, you know, make it something that people will look towards as being the natural solution to making something easier rather than something a little bit more difficult to understand with higher barriers to entry? Yeah, so I think I, I can break this into three sections. One is the form factor. The, the winning point of ChatGPT specifically is that it was exactly like Google. It was just the text bar with the push button and you ask something on natural language, it's going to return something to you, which was very magical. And I don't think we found that moment in crypto yet. There isn't a magic UX in crypto that says, oh my God, this is transformative. Therefore, we didn't reach 1 million users in crypto the way ChatGPT reached in like maybe five days. That is very powerful. So now when it comes to AI and crypto in between, the moment we realize that some of our data is being used without our consent, which, which we got used to with social media, but social media wasn't generating something else, at least not to the extent that we could see. So if you're an artist and a portion of your style gets co-opted on a corpus and then generates another piece of art, which is quote unquote, trained with your data, is this not somewhat your property as well? My point being, if we can use the underlying tech of crypto, which is blockchain, to trace the data that's being used to process whatever AI is doing, and in the same fashion, use the same rails to pay for the owner of that data, royalties, a fee, or whatever the case may be. We're creating that kind of self-reinforcing loop. And you can also say, well, if the data is out in the open, how do we bring it back into a blockchain of some sort? Yeah, that is going to be a challenge because we got used to being the product, right? If the service is free, the product is you. And we got used to this. Now, how do we roll it back is going to be a challenge for sure. 
I mean, I get this argument completely, and I think it makes complete sense. You know, use the provenance technology of blockchain to solve the provenance problem of AI. But if you're building an AI and you're taking in data from everywhere to train your LLM, what incentive do you have to actually use that blockchain technology? I mean, there's no law telling you you have to show provenance. There's no kind of user demand necessarily saying you have to use a blockchain to show provenance. I mean, how is this actually going to happen? Yeah, it's... Uh... If blockchain taught us anything, is that everything is on incentives, right? It's everything is based on incentives. Right. So I, I hear you. And as a AI builder, you probably have no incentives. But when it comes to AI being more precise and accurate, we we saw that a lawyer used ChatGPT for references in previous cases, and none of those cases existed. That is a very costly mistake, and that could be a hundred percent solved with data provenance. It just didn't. So I think we're going to see users that require either a better grasp on precision, so it doesn't hallucinate with the data, a better grasp on the validity and the accuracy of the results of an AI model to start pushing back on the builders and say, either your model is not good enough for this use case, or your data is not good enough for the use case, you need to do better. We're paying you enough you know, dull, so you need to make this better. And that's where I think we're going to start to see the incentives, incentivization to go back to the foundation of the underlying data and say, mm, I'm going to have to fix this at the very bottom of the stack. And potentially we'll, we'll, we'll find a, a convergence at that point. But I 100% I agree with you. There's got to be incentives and it might, it might come from the user base rather than the builder themselves. And in that way, the two technologies are almost at polar opposites, right? Blockchains can only show the information that was inputted as was inputted. It doesn't change that information, doesn't modify it, doesn't alter it. It just documents that at this point in time, this is what happened. And you can see that that is at least whatever was inputted, you can see that state later on. With AI, you put in reams and reams of data and the outcome is presented to you confidently, but you don't actually know if it's true or not because it's just some mishmash of information. So I'm very curious to see how founders approach meshing those two things together because the AIs are still going to be tasked with creating new information out of the old input. So what good is it if the new information is verifiably accurate to what it was? It's all. I can't even talk through how it how it all works because it's all so complicated. I just don't understand how we can mesh the AI over here and the blockchain over there because the two ways that these things handle data is so different. Well, it's data is data, right? You're actually processing a data set in an LLM that it's sourced somehow somewhere. And, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of manual work to actually curate the data that's being processed by LLMs still to this day, right? So, and yes, blockchains are like hard data that is structured and traceable. The fact is, again, use cases, as much as we've spoken about use cases in crypto for the last 10, 12 years, it's the same for any technology, right? If you're not solving a real problem, or if you're not solving a real problem with the quality that you're expected to be solving that with, there will be a demand for something that is better or more precise or more accurate. So technically, I don't know exactly how these two things are going to go together. But 
if we start to see, say, the work that Matz is doing uh, at Dune in blending ChatGPT capabilities on top of the blockchain data that's curated by the Dune wizards to make sense of it in natural language way, you start to see those two worlds coming together, maybe not specifically to solve, say, an art problem or an art provenance problem, but to solve crypto-based problems in a natural language way. So they will, they will merge. They, oh, merge is the worst word to use in this context, but they will blend to some extent based on the needs of the use cases. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super confident that this is, this is going to happen because again, even blockchains, they are all about the data. Uh, let's move the conversation away from AI for a second and talk again, I think, about the international context. Mauricio, you've got a good eye into Brazil in particular. I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts with regards to your podcast uh, in Portuguese and just your experiences. How is crypto and Web3 coming along in Brazil? As a Brazilian, born and raised, worked 20-something years in the financial markets there. Uh, it's very refreshing to see the positioning of the central bank in welcoming crypto as a, as a part of the real economy, right? You can say that because it's emerging markets, it's, it might be not as relevant as, you know, the G7. But if you see what's going on in other emerging countries like Argentina, some places in Africa and some places in Southeast Asia, crypto adoption tends to move faster when there's a real need for self-sovereign money. Uh, I think that's one way of seeing this. So Brazil, the Central Bank of Brazil has been very active in embracing technology for various decades. I mean, we had one of the first same-day settlement process in, in the world. PIX, which is the instant payments platform sponsored and maintained by the central bank, is also something that gave a lot of access to the banking sector for previously unbanked population. So it's a very interesting use case. And what the central bank and, and now the participants are doing, they're working on a few different spaces. There is a Lyft. Lyft is a lab, the name of the lab at the central bank that deals with new technology. There's the whole digital real effort, which is a CBDC. And it's a wholesale CBDC pilot between the banks and the central bank. So it's beyond instant payments. It's how you automate some of the delivery versus payment processes between digitized or tokenized assets and other forms of digital money. And there's all sorts of DeFi projects being uh, incubated on the Lyft Lab, even with borrowing and lending, mortgages and bonds uh, in the DeFi space. There's a lot of experimentation going on in the country. And it's interesting to see some of my former colleagues and, and some of my friends uh, actively engaged in the industry and even questioning the central bank, why this, why that, why this technology, why not that other one? And I'm just happy that they didn't go through the process of establishing a retail CBDC first. I'm happy that they're holding their horses and doing wholesale CBDC, which I think is uh, much more reasonable. Mm -hmm. And with central banks and the development of CBDCs, this isn't about Brazil, but more broadly, I'm fascinated by the BIS, the Bank for International Settlements, came out with a paper recently that looked into how the Curve Automatic Market Maker, the AMM, Automated Market Maker rather, could be used to handle CBDCs in an international context. Like, I look, I haven't, I used to read BIS papers here all the time. Thankfully, or maybe not thankfully, I don't read them anymore for Coindesk. But just the idea that the banks are aware of Curve AMMs and thinking about and actually testing it 
Do you, like, how does this make you feel about central banks, right? At least for me, I'm excited just by the fact that they're paying attention. It's like, oh, wow, look, we're a big deal. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm the one that gets excited with regulated DeFi. DeFi degens hate me for that. Mm-hmm. And I apologize <laughs> profusely. It's, it's not on purpose. But if you think about like the more general population that doesn't yet have access to crypto and might have a shot at having access to a much more efficient financial markets through regulated DeFi, that's very promising, right? Um, so I think that's one way of looking at it. But yeah, I tend to get excited about traditional finance touching DeFi. The first instance where that clicked for me was Project Guardian by the MAS, the Monetary Authority of Singapore last year. They did it with JP Morgan, DBS, SBI Digital Assets. And it was a effect swap to purchase a bond and everything was on chain, verifiable credentials, Aave, Arc, and Fireblocks. And most, like all of our regular DeFi crypto names were involved in doing something that was sponsored by a regulator. So it's not unusual that they are trying these things. And if you recall, last year, the IMF of all places put out a paper that said, that DeFi lending is the most efficient form of DeFi when it comes to operation efficiency. Like it's, it's not me saying, it's the IMF now seeing Project Mariana, the one you mentioned uh, with, the, with the BIS, exploring the use of automated market maker to make it more efficient when you're doing cross-border FX transactions. It's kind of a logical thing because if you have 30-party liquidity providers on a dual currency pool, which is 100% what DEXs do um, in, in DeFi, and you have a reward when transactions like that happen to the liquidity providers, and you don't have the two sides of that transaction holding other denominations or hedging against other denominations, that's wildly efficient for countries. So it's a different take on problems that, and more importantly, it didn't go through the SWIFT network. It was just peer-to-peer using an AMM. So yeah, they have to. Like if you're in financial services, and I tell this to clients all the time, if you're in financial services and you're seeing the barrage of innovation coming out of DeFi, and you're not a bit curious of trying it out, why are you in financial services? That's where the innovation is coming from, right? So I, I feel uh, refreshed. There are other positions of the BIS, which I don't necessarily see eye to eye. Well, who am I? But that one was very interesting to see. There are some, some shortcomings. I did read the, the, the PDF. There are some shortcomings. There is no discussion about like impermanent loss. I, I haven't seen any uh, discussion, which is a big implication in DeFi when it comes to liquidity pools. But it wasn't the final report either. There will be a, a final report coming in a couple of months. So uh, hopefully they will address some of those things that we DeFi people know very well. I'm sure they will. And I'm looking forward to that because when they're, uh, when central bankers are coming at these issues, they're going to have a very different eye than what we're used to. And having a different perspective is a really good thing because that means that they'll find things and look for things that we wouldn't think to. So I'm sure that They'll talk about impermanent loss and point out things that we haven't thought about before, hopefully. And the result might be some future where different central banks around the world are providing liquidity for currency pairs. That would be a really cool development to come out of this, especially if the BIS is organizing it. 
But we also might learn from them in thinking, how do we better design these pools? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn most of the time. I'm a more of a observer on crypto Twitter, but I'm on LinkedIn uh, most of the time. And there are huge detractors when it comes to Web3. And, and I got thinking, why don't I block these people? <laughs> because they're very toxic. And the reason why I kind of figured out is maybe we need them right now. Maybe we need people pointing out the flaws that we haven't seen and our blind spots. Because if we do it right and these detractors come on board, we did a damn good job in establishing an industry. So yeah, let the haters hate. At least if we pay attention to what they're saying, we might learn some of the things we really need to fix. I mean, some are obvious and we're not doing anything about them, but the ones that aren't, we might do well in paying attention and, and going after them for sure. The key then might be let the haters hate, but don't hate the haters. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just business and technology. We don't need to hate the people. Web3 is for the people. Why do we hate them? Let's not. Thank you so much, Mauricio. This is a fun conversation. Looking forward to hearing more of your thoughts another time. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, crossovers. It's all about the crossovers. It's Friday evening in Las Vegas. You've had a long day, but you stumble upon the Follow the Rabbit event. You walk in and you see that this event is hosted by Azuki the popular blue chip, if you will, NFT collection. The event turns into a club-like atmosphere. People are partying and celebrating. And if you're there, you get airdropped one of these unrevealed NFTs in the upcoming collection that's sent to Mint next Monday. Twitter's starting to catch on. People become very excited about this Elementals NFT Mint, this new collection from Mizuki. So as you sign up to get into this presale, however... You only get through 15 minutes because the mint had some crazy chaos and the artwork turned out to be even more chaotic. So that was a long intro, but let's talk about this Azuki Elementals chaos and a lot of the conversation around PFPs and long-term value. So Cam, what was wrong with the mint here? So Azuki had planned to go live with this mint, you know, starting with a pre-sale for holders of Azuki or Beans NFTs and in 15 minutes, they would be able to buy these NFTs for two ETH, which at the time was about $3,800. Now, the mint was supposed to then, after 20 minutes, turn into a public sale in the form of a Dutch auction, meaning that every five minutes, the price would decrease by 0.1 ETH. The mint only made it through 15 minutes before all of the tokens were sold out all 10,000 that they had intended to sell. So only Azuki and Beans holders ended up getting the NFT, which one is contradictory to Azuki's plan to introduce more people into its ecosystem through this collection. And secondly, a lot of people reported having issues with being able to actually mint the NFT. You know, the website was slow, people had multiple browsers up in anticipation to get one of these, and they weren't able to. So those were some of the concerns about the mint, and people were furious talking about how they wish they could have gotten one and they were so upset. There was actually one person in Discord, and this made me really sad. He said he was waiting to mint one of these NFTs, and he was so frustrated that his mom walked up to his room to deliver him a plate of chicken nuggets, and he was so angry he slapped the plate of chicken nuggets out of his mom's hand. That's a little bit of degen behavior for you, what's going on right now, but people were very upset with the mint before they had even known what the artwork was going to be, which that's another story. 
I mean, things must have been pretty bad if that guy's uh, knocking nuggets out of his mother's hand. Absolutely. People were very, very frustrated. You know, a lot of a lot of DGENs, a lot of incel behavior in this space. So that's just a little snippet of it. Regardless, moving on to the artwork, that was a whole nother disaster, which we can get into. Well, I was looking at uh, Twitter on this uh, briefly this morning, and it seemed like the old NFTs were very similar to the new NFTs, or the new NFTs were very similar to the old NFTs. So if you bought into the new collection, you would seemingly deservedly be rather pissed. I mean, it's like, why buy the new thing if you got the old thing? Exactly. There were actually several tokens that Twitter sleuth spotted out that had the exact same metadata. So the same from the facade, they looked the same. But, you know, if you actually dug into the data behind them, they were literally the same NFTs. And Azuki responded and said they were quickly going to update these and make sure that they weren't the same exact artwork. But beyond just these similarities of specific tokens, there were a lot of very close resembling features between original Azukis and Elementals. So it left a lot of people feeling like this was dilution or that, you know, why would they want to buy an Elemental if they already had an Azuki and how will that impact Azuki's price alongside Elemental's price, which is trading way below its original sale price of 2 ETH, which is obviously a very bad sign for a collection. Right. So the DAO has now floated a plan to do something about the, these problems, right? There's a, there's a vote out on various resolutions, one of which is to give the money back. Can you tell us about that? And do you think this is a good example of DAO democracy or is it some kind of something else? Well, wait, let's back up for a second. What, what is the proposal? The DAO is voting to reclaim 20K ETH like after the mint. Like they want, they want the money back. They want 20K. They, they want all of the money back. So the 20K ETH, that's 38 million, which they made. So does the DAO have control of the treasury? Um. I don't think it is the Azuki treasury. Like I don't think the Azuki money and... DAO. I'm not sure if that's the same pool. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, I don't know if Azuki's money is the DAO treasury. Yeah, I'm curious right. because if, if, if with these DAOs, mm -hmm. when they don't actually have control of the treasury, it's like, well, what, what's the point of the DAO, really? If you don't have control over the money, then when you're voting to make decisions, you can't actually even vote to fund the decision. You're relying on other parties to carry out your wishes. So I need to look into, you know, as the, as the DAO um, decimator here. I need to look into this and, and better understand how much power this DAO actually has. Because if it doesn't have actual power, then what's the point? At least in my opinion. The story, uh, according to our colleague Sharia, said that the DAO, uh, as of Monday morning, had 72 members and there'd only been 36 votes on this new proposal, with 40% of those votes being a yes from a single holder. So it doesn't really sound like you know, real democracy here. This sounds like uh, a bit of a stitch up job. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I'm just looking at the proposal right now, and it doesn't look like there's been a lot more voting action. However, I agree with what Danny said, you know, if there isn't really a fund whatsoever, or, you know, a real pool of money behind the DAO that actually can ensure this is decentralized. I mean, if they're voting to win back 200,000 Ethereum, then how will a DAO be able to do that if that money isn't already within the DAO? It just isn't necessarily the best route in order to take for that. And Azuki has been really responsive to this whole situation. They apologized. They're going to airdrop a green bean NFT, which a lot of people are saying just looks like Canva clip art. <laughs> but they're trying to make amends for this mess. To me, this gets at a 
bigger issue, though, with these companies that are making money by issuing tokens or artwork or anything. It's the fact that they even we even need to look to them to see how they're trying to make amends. Well, they should be going into these sales and into these drafts thinking, well, what are we going to do here that's additive? And what are we going to do here that's different? Because if they're actually thinking that and they're designing their artwork and their mechanisms in a way that's substantively different from how they used to do it or, or however they do it, then they won't have to look back and think, well, we really screwed up. Now we have to send this other green bean thing to everyone just to make them hate us less because they'll have actually done their job and thinking about what they're doing beforehand. So I just want to see everyone take a step back here and work to make something productive and make something cool, not just art that's the same art. Come on, do a little better. And more than just a cash grab as well, I mean, 38 million on a PFP collection, 38 million in 15 minutes is wild for the time that we're in right now. I mean, considering NFT trading volumes have been very down this past year, and a lot of people are criticizing the value behind other PFP collections. I mean, just today, Bored Ape's floor price is down to October 2021 lows. So across the space, PFPs are not doing great. Well, like I always say, more crazy NFT news, something chaotic is bound to happen in the metaverse every week. But catch us next week. We'll be around. Can't wait to talk more crypto news. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Danny. See you next time on Carpe Consensus. Bye. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.